Thanks for joining us for this Sunday worship gathering. We're continuing to explore the book of 1 John in a message series we're calling Authentic, Finding What's Real in a World of Fake. Let's prepare our hearts to hear what God has for us today. Uh, So it's week five in this message series that we call Authentic, Making Our Way Through the Book of 1 John. You can turn there. We're going to be in chapter four. If you've got a text or an app, you pick. Uh, And we're finding out what's real in a world of fake. And as we come up to chapter 4, John, the author of 1 John, we call him Pastor John. He's got a a bit of a problem that he's needing to address. And uh, it's uh, an astonishing revelation to some of us that the first church, the early church, wasn't perfect, right? Sometimes we tend to think back to, what do we call them, the good old days, right? When everything was perfect and, you know, Primrose Path and all this stuff, but it wasn't. Even the first church of Jesus Christ, the early church of Jesus Christ, had its fair share of challenges. One of them was there's a whole bunch of churches scattered all over the Roman Empire, isolated in cities, some of them hundreds, thousands of miles away from each other. There weren't any formal creeds to give guidance to what was true, what was false about Christianity. No scriptures available as we know scripture today. Nobody in those days owned a New Testament of the Bible. And so you see at the very best, early Christians might have had a random assorted collection of letters from the apostles of Jesus Christ. They might have some collections of stories about Jesus. And so oral communication was everything. Oral communication was everything. Churches relied on apostles and leaders sending out information relayed from community to community, taught in house churches all along the way. Paul sent out Timothy. Paul sent out Silas in that capacity. John sent out elders as his spokespersons. And so you hear all that and you step back and you're like, with that kind of a communication strategy, what could possibly go wrong, right? Relying on oral, right? The game of telephone. Have you ever played the game of telephone? And you get around the circle and it's like, what? in the world your grandma said what to who about that yeah whoa so sometimes as the problem would unfold prophets or teachers would arrive at those churches claiming authority that wasn't even theirs to claim and so pastor john says hey church and he says it to us not just the early church he says it to us as well he equips his people in the churches he's responsible for to always be assessing always be testing the message they heard test the message you hear And test the spirit that inspires the message that you hear. And here's what he says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the spirit. You must, what them? Test them to see if the spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. This is how we know if they have the spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, that person has the spirit of God. So you see, there's these tests. You can check the message that you hear, and the primary check, the primary test is, what did they say about Jesus? What do they say about Jesus? And then John sort of gets on in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, one of the most repeated bits of scripture ever. This will be familiar to almost all of us. Listen to what John writes. The Spirit, capital S, who lives in you, is greater than the Spirit who lives where? In the world. The spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. And back in 1963, there was a nuclear submarine. It was called the Thresher. And the nuclear submarine Thresher experienced catastrophic failure and could not get back to the surface of the ocean. Could you imagine that? It just sank deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the ocean. 
And as happens as you get deeper and deeper into the ocean, the pressure, pressure gets more and more intense, more and more immense. Eventually welds on the thresher blew apart, water blasted in, and the thresher was lost at the bottom of the sea. 129 fine souls lost. And the Navy, of course, our Navy goes searching for the thresher. They had a craft that was even stronger than submarines were, shaped like a steel ball, lowered into the ocean on a cable. And they finally located the thresher's wreckage 8,400 feet below the surface of the ocean. 8,400, that's a mile and a half down. Wreckage strewn all along the bottom of the ocean floor. And the pressure at that depth, there's only one word for the pressure at that depth, crushing. Crushing pressure. What was absolutely astonishing to the searchers, however, was that they saw fish swimming around at that depth, 8,400 feet beneath the surface of the sea. And those fish did not have inches of steel protecting them. They had normal fish skin, fractions of an inch thick. And they asked the question, how is it that those fish can survive under all of that pressure? Why don't they get crushed by the weight of the water? Well, those fish have a secret, don't they? And their secret is that they have the same pressure inside of themselves that is pressing against them from the outside. The same pressure inside that's pressing against them from the outside. We would call it survival under pressure, wouldn't we? And Pastor John, he sort of puts his arm around us and he goes, look, the spirit who lives in you, followers of Jesus Christ, is greater, far, far greater than the spirit who lives in this world. He's reminding us again and again, we're victorious. We win the day in the battle against Satan. How? Why? Because Jesus poured his spirit into our hearts. And here's what we know about Satan. He's our enemy and he's prowling around constantly seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And in all of his destruction, he's not at all creative, is he? Satan is never, ever creative. He doesn't actually create anything. All Satan can do is distort what's real. That's what Satan does. Satan's a distorter. He talks to us. He whispers in our ears. Every single thing he says is not true. Everything he says is a what? Lie. He lies and he lies and he lies and he creates, Satan does, this distortion field. He's the father of lies and he's distorting. He's not creating, he's just distorting. And Satan works, check this out, to lie to us in such a way so it makes us appear that the problems that we face look bigger than the solutions that we carry. Did you catch that? Satan works in our lives, seeks to work in our lives, distorting such in our lives Lying to us so it makes it look like that the problems, the obstacles, the challenges that we're facing look bigger than the solutions that we carry. And here's what we know, followers of Jesus Christ. We're carriers of the Spirit of God. That's what Pastor John says. The one who lives in you, the Spirit who lives in you. We're carriers of the Spirit of God. We're carriers of the power of God. The same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead, we carry in us. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we're seeking every day, right, to live the will of God. We're carriers of the Spirit of God. We carry the power of God. We live in the will of God. And we have, followers of Jesus Christ, been given this incredible, immense privilege to display the King and His kingdom. That's our privilege. And along comes Satan, and he whispers in our ears, and he lies in our ears, and he says, look, You lack, and you lack, 
and you lack. See, he's trying to make us mindful of every single thing that we're lacking. But what's God's word do? God's word is always declaring to us every single thing that we have. The spirit that lives in you, the spirit that you have, the power of God that you carry, the will of God that you're fleshing out. Satan's trying all the time to make us mindful of everything that we lack. And God's word says, no way. Look at all that you have. Look at all that you have. Look at all that you have. And here comes Pastor John, and he says, it's greater. Everything that you have by the spirit and power of God is greater. God's greater. Satan loses the day because God wins the day and God's in us. God's greater. And then John sort of abruptly turns his attention to addressing matters of Christian love very simply. And he says, look, Christian love is rooted in the person of God and who God is at his very core. Dear friends, he says, starting in verse seven, let us continue to love one another for love comes from God and anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. And this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Do you get it? God is love. God is love. That means all, and this is difficult to reconcile sometimes, what I'm about to say. That means because God is love, all of God's activity, therefore, is loving. All of God's activity, all of the time, is loving. Because love is the very essence of God's being. And John writes it, God showed, he showed, he didn't just talk about it, he showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. That's real love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. He sent his son as a sacrifice to take, take away our sins. And never before had God done such a thing in history. Never before. And so here comes Jesus Christ and he's this grand, Jesus Christ is the grand unveiling of God's heart. God on display quite vulnerably before all of the world. And we have a choice. What will we do with him? What will we do with Jesus? And so God's love then obligates us. And I know we don't like this word. You can fill that in. Obligates us. That's all we need, right? We're like, oh, one more obligation. But it does. It puts us on the hook The love of God demonstrated to us obligates us to love one another. Listen to what John says. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought, here it is, the the obligatory word loaded up, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him, he in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And all who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them and they live in God. We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love. And all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. 
So this obligation that we carry to love one another is a byproduct of God's loving generosity that he poured out on us, gave us, gives us every single day, which then results, number three, in our expression of it. It results in our expression of it. We go live that love out, the same love that we received. And as we live in God, John writes, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love, you recognize this one too, because perfect love expels, casts out, is maybe how you've heard it, all fear. And if we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. God's love set inside of us is made complete. It's made perfect. And God's perfect love, I put this little diagram on your notes page for you. I'll show you how it unfolds. God's perfect love expressed in our lives looks like this. It starts with a healthy love of self. It then reflects in a healthy, full-hearted love of God and moves on to a desperate love for others, a desperate love of others. That is perfect love as John describes it. Now, there's a little problem. Because any time and every time we talk about God's love, especially in terms like Pastor John talks about it in 1 John 4, there lands a giant elephant in the middle of the room. Boom! Comes crashing down. And we call it the risk of abundantly generous love. That's the elephant that lands smack dab in the middle of the room when we talk about the love of God in ways like Pastor John talks about it. I was reading about a Christian college professor recently. He asked 40 students, all the students in one of his classes, to write a very simple one-page essay, assessing, taking a measurement of whether or not their lives had been shaped by the threat of God's law or the wonder of God's grace and unconditional love. A simple one-page assessment. Has your Christian life been shaped by the threat of God's law primarily or the wonder of God's grace and unconditional love? Which is it? And so the students went away and they wrote their one-page essay and they turned them all back in and the professor was absolutely devastated by the results. Over 90% of the class admitted privately, nobody was going to see these papers, that the possibility of God's disfavor and wrath had been the most powerful force in shaping their Christian outlook all the way since childhood. 90%. I'll bet the statistic would be very similar if we did something similar with us here. 90% of the class admitted that the possibility of God's disfavor and wrath had been the most powerful force in shaping their Christian outlook since childhood. So you see, instead of God's unending love being foremost in their hearts and minds, God's displeasure was foremost in their hearts and minds. And they admitted, 90% of them admitted, Christianity is really just all about following the rules. Just follow the rules. Just follow the rules. Just follow the rules. Friends, that's not it. It's not it. That's not it. It never has been it. And yet our reflex, at least for a whole bunch of us, is to get on the pleasing God treadmill, running our guts out, so that God will continue to 
favor us. And we run, and we run, and we run, and we run, and we go, God, look, look at me. Aren't I something? Finally, do all this good stuff. Pour out your favor, please, please, please. Look at me. I'm doing, that's not it either. Not even close to it. Instead, here's how it works. God favors us first, and then we learn to please him. As we learn his heart, as we get to know him more and more and better and better, we learn to please him because he favors us. And I want you to hear and I want you to see what one of those 21-year-old college students in that Christian university class, a very strong follower of Jesus, listen to what she writes. I feel like God punishes me for sins all of the time. I feel that there is always something I am being punished for. I know that it is impossible because there are not enough minutes in the day for God to punish us. I probably should not call it punishment, but that is the way I feel about God's justice. Maybe some of us in this room could write this very paragraph. But that is the way I feel about God's justice. I know God's love and blessings for me, and for that I am eternally grateful and thankful. There's a little Christianese sprinkled in. But I live with this fear, catch this, I live with this fear that one mess up and I'll be punished again. And how many Christians are walking around right now with that very same mentality? Which in my mind and in my heart just begs the question, who in the world is it that stole the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who stole it? Where did the good news of the gospel go? It's as if some in the Christian faith have become afraid that without the fear, without the lever of disciplinary threat, that the boundless, ever-abundant, unconditional love of Jesus Christ might just be exploited. And so we lever away, and we use fear, and we use guilt, and we use shame, because we wouldn't ever want to exploit the boundless, ever-abundant, unconditional love of Jesus Christ. And here's what's true. That love of Jesus Christ can absolutely be exploited. Every single day, it can be abused. It is, and it can, and it does get abused. And yet, Pastor John, you know what he does? He steps right into the middle of it, and he accepts that risk. And he says, it's worth it. I'm not going to use fear. He never ever says, neither does the Apostle Paul, neither one of them ever says that when our Christian discipleship falls down or fails or screws up that we somehow, someway lose the love of God. They don't say it because we don't. It's not true. Instead, what's Pastor John Wright? Perfect love expels. Perfect love casts out all what? Fear. Perfect love from God casts out all fear which lands in the middle of our laps in this way, that any time our view of God is shaped by fear or anxiety or worry over losing his affection, we have not fully experienced his commitment to us. Which then means that our failure to express that very same kind of love that God expresses to us is an indicator that we haven't yet met the power of God's divine love ourselves. We haven't ever received it ourselves. 
Dennis sent me a blog post this week. I'm going to finish on this note. It's a blog post written by a guy who some years ago moved into a neighborhood, a neighborhood uh, that was in serious decline, a neighborhood that was caught sort of in between uh, an advancing interstate and progress, as often happens. Both the interstate and progress were passing his old rundown neighborhood by, to say the least. So this guy moves into the neighborhood, and to his delight and surprise, he finds that he has the very most intriguing of neighbors. And they become fast friends, these people all around him. There was Sis, was her name. She lived next door. Sis was married to a quiet alcoholic. His name was Walter. Sis's mother, who they called Mama, she lived right across the street. Mary, who was an operator with AT&T back when there were operators for AT&T, lived on his left Everett, her cab driver husband, he much would much rather have driven his cab than ever be home. Mrs. Nichols lived up the street. She consistently ran for mayor every single time. She got eight votes every time she ran, just from her close circle of neighbors, never won the election. And there was a giant apartment complex across the street, and a guy named Big Malcolm lived in that apartment complex. Big Malcolm had tons of friends because every single day people visited him about once every 15 minutes. They left all of them with very small gift bags. And then there was a woman who also lived in that apartment complex whose name they never ever even knew. She had a weathered face bearing scars of a very, very rough life. She had a very frail frame, very unsteady on her feet it would seem. And this woman, too, had frequent visitors, men, only men, all men, all the time. And everybody in the neighborhood knew what this woman did to make money, and no one in the neighborhood much cared for that, much cared for her, didn't like it. And one night, this blog author and his roommate, his roommate's name was Eddie, they were sitting out on their front porch as good Southerners do on a summer evening and Eddie pulled out his guitar and started playing his guitar and pretty soon the neighbors around had gathered and joined in for an old-fashioned gospel hymn sing right on their front porch. There was Sis and there was Mama and there was Mary and there was Mary's mom. A few other wonderful misfits were there singing old hymns of Christian faith together. And they sang along for a while, and then they finally got to everyone's favorite, which was the old rugged cross. And they sang the first verse in the chorus, and the second verse in the chorus. And then he says, it happened. It happened. Toward the end of the chorus of the second verse, a figure started walking through the darkness toward their house. And you know who it was? It was her. The woman who they didn't like very much because of her occupation. The woman who they didn't even know her name. The woman they shunned. And that woman came up right onto the porch and she nestled right up against the railing and she joined in on the third verse. And they got to the chorus and he said she belted out a harmony that would rival like, I don't know, Vince Gill the most beautiful, lilting harmony you've ever heard. And I'll cling to the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down 
I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. And she sang the fourth verse and the last chorus, and then she wandered silently back across the street into her apartment. And the author said, I was silenced, stunned, silent by my arrogance and by my judgment. He said, tears welled up in my eyes. And here's what he says. Because see, while I'd been sneering at a prostitute, and that's what he'd been doing, sneering at a prostitute, I'd completely missed a deeper truth. That that woman who lived across the street, who had an occupation that I didn't much care for, she was at one time just a little girl. A little girl who had likely been in Sunday school, a little girl who had likely been in Sunday school singing songs of hope and redemption, and somewhere between that day as a little girl singing songs of hope and redemption in Sunday school, and some other day, she just simply lost her way. And she'd been wandering for certainly a long, long time, but you know, all she wanted was to come home. She just wanted to come home. And there's a verse in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. I'm going to read this to you from the message translation because it just nails it. We call Abraham father, not because he got God's attention by living like a saint, but because God made something out of Abraham when he was a what? A nobody. Isn't that what we've always read in Scripture? God saying to Abraham, I set you up as a father of many peoples. Abraham was first named father and then became a father because he dared to trust God to do what only God could do, raise the dead to life with a word, make something out of nothing. When everything was hopeless, Abraham believed anyway, deciding to live not on the basis of what he saw he couldn't do, but on what God said he would do. And so you see what we say about God is that he sees things that are not as they appear. You could say it this way as a matter of fact that God has a most vivid imagination for people. A most vivid imagination for people. An imagination that begins and ends with an unbounded, unconditional, unending love for them. All of them. A love that compels him to see far beyond what is. A love that compels him to see what could be. God imagining them, imagining us, imagining you as they, we, you, me, would be. Would be. And so Journey, what, what if we adopted that very same mindset, the same mindset of God? A mindset of not just believing what it is that we see on the surface, but instead, what if we developed an imagination for people, God's imagination for people, God's imagination even for ourselves, certainly for others. An imagination for people that begins and ends with the unbounded, unconditional, unending, as Pastor John says, love of God. And friends, if we could only do that, I believe that God would show us a thing or two or twelve about his mercy and his grace and his love and his good 
news. And we might just get the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ back. That it isn't just reserved for a select, well-behaved few. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant for everyone. Everyone. Can I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and let's pray together. God in heaven, thank you so much for the divine imagination that you carry for us. And that your imagination for all of us and for every person on planet earth isn't informed by anything other than your unconditional, unending, unbounded love that Jesus, you pour out time and time again. And would you continue to pour it out time and time again? And Jesus, please help us see people the way you see people. Not as they are, but as that you as you would wish them, as you would make them to be. Oh Jesus, we love you and we gratefully receive all of your love. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.